welcome to season two of I'm Just Old Darling. Hello, kia ora, mailo. My name's Michelle, I'm the host of I'm Just Older Darling, a series of conversations with members of our communities who are sometimes referred to as elders, their stories, their words. Kia ora and welcome, I'm Michelle from Same Same But Black. Today we are speaking to Leah from Whanganui Atara about what it's like to be I'm Just Older Darling. Um, thank you for taking the time to join us and hello. Oh, <laughs> oh shoot. okay well um my name's leah lupala and i was actually uh my dad came to new zealand from from tanzania and i was born in the lovely little village of hunterville um it's very out of the way and there's a whole long story behind that because uh, the year was 1966 and um, SCAP scholars were the African migrants that were studying, the scholars um, studying in, in um, New Zealand. And SCAP stands for Special Commonwealth African Assistance Plan. And that ran between 1960 and 1970. Um, there was no uh, pathway to residency in those days. And the stories that I was told from the elders then that were my elders on my mum's side was that there was a huge connection between my dad uh, being deported and me being born because it wasn't actually, it wasn't actually supposed to happen. I was kind of like, you know, the Eskimo in the Sahara, like what happened? How did I end up here? You know? So, um, yeah, so I grew up in New Zealand and, uh, you know, my dad always stayed in contact with, uh, my grandparents because I was raised by my grandparents not by my mum and um then uh we moved to we moved from they were actually based in Palmerston North and so see I was born in Hunterville so that's like there's a whole story behind that as well you know like that um and my mum my actually when she started showing she was spirited off to her cousins in Wanganui but before I was born then she was spirited off again to Hunterville. So it was all about covering up the birth. And then I appeared and um, my grandfather had a saying, because um, he took me in and sent my mum back to university. And my dad used to come up every weekend. And there was always a saying, um, you know, when people in the family asked where I came from, he said, we found you in the cabbage patch. That was the end of the story. Because he was... Uh, he was a train driver and tough guy and um, nobody argued with him. So a lot of people didn't know where I came from in my family. I just turned up one day. So that was, that's a really bizarre sort of situation in itself. How do you feel being an elder? That's and what, a does, that, yeah, and what that's does that a, look like to you? I mean, that's a, that's a really, okay. I don't feel like I'm like the elders that were the elders when I was a kid. I feel completely different. Okay, my brain, like my body and everything is like, I'm hitting mid fifties, but my brain is still like somewhere around 40, <laughs> so, you know, and, but my body doesn't want to follow my 40, my 40 year old mental self, if you know what I mean, my body's a little bit slower. So I sort of feel like I'm that elder that kind of sees through a lot of bullshit and calls it out usually like, um, you know, like some of the things that we were brought up to, because I, I, you know, I come, I'm a child of the 60s and of course raised by my grandparents. So elders, what they said went, you know, like even in Pākehā culture, what they said went, 
but today I'm kind of like, you know what? Um, I think sometimes, you know, like elders got to earn their, their, their space. They've got to do the work. And when you're living in the diaspora, a lot of those traditional roles kind of dissipate. You know, you see a, there's a lot of people like um, there's elders out here that just want you to respect them because they're older. But, you know, like they have no, n there's no connection between you and them. And um, they might not have all the, all the answers or any answers, you know, and I think that's, kind of that's kind of difficult in in a, in a community that's uh been broken by by travel by intercontinental transit and people moving from place to place finding that finding that space where um you know the youth sort of go oh yeah she's an elder she doesn't act like those other elders <laughs> She doesn't behave that way. She goes out at night. Like, what is she doing going out, um, you know, or talking about, you know, sex, taboo topics, you know, like, what is she doing doing that? She's not supposed to do that. And, like, I sort of feel it, but I sort of, I'm like, there's something about me that kind of wants to push back on it. And maybe it's because, you know, um, from about my teenage years onwards, um, I didn't have many elders or role role players in my life and I was kind of learning learning how because I've been raising myself since I was about 14 so I didn't spend very long in my mother's house when I left my grandmother's so it's being raised without having parents actively in your life you kind of start looking around at who are the older people in your life and are they the people you want to you want to be able to roll model off I mean if you if you're lucky enough to have grown up with your parents like my son has until he's 26 I think you better better accept what you got but but when but when um you know you haven't had that and I didn't have that so I made sure I gave it to my sons even though it was you know just me I've got two sons so yeah yeah so that's sort of yeah what do you think the impact of not having those elders had on you on your family and what do you think it has for the wider um black community right in New Zealand that's, that's a good question that's a really good question because it's something that you know I've often I'm a I'm a child that went into welfare in New Zealand eventually before I ended up you know doing my having to look after myself pretty much and that was in a time when there was a lot of kids that were 15 that were going out and you know um working and living in their own places and getting married at 16 and stuff like that it was a different generation right so me being and we didn't have I think back then the same kind of attention to our youth that we do today like everything's very youth focused today but that didn't exist then. So it was very easy for somebody like me to fall through the cracks when I when the parents, the, the mother and you know, stepfather that were here were not actually being parents. They basically just dumped me somewhere. So um I had to figure and, and what I think that did for me was it put me behind. Like I was behind. I was I I, I dropped out of school. I I actually got expelled from Avondale College. <laughs> and um, then I got moved around the country a bit before I ended up in welfare. And I'm the and from that uh 
from that commission, Royal Commission into Historical Youth and Welfare, I'm the only one that the commissioner said that has African heritage that's actually from that generation that went through that. So, um, you know, like for me, it put me behind. I think a lot of things that you naturally learn if you stay in the home with your parents, like if your parents are business owners, you'll learn about business. If your parents are like educated, you'll learn certain things that actually it's like, uh, what is it? Cultural capital, which I didn't have. I was in the home one minute and on the streets the next. And my only thing was, you know, for two and a half years, nearly three years was survival. It wasn't really about um, it wasn't really about building myself. I had to find somewhere to live, something to eat, clean clothes to wear, and that was a daily kind of thing. And eventually, I got off the streets, and eventually, like I managed to get into um, you know a job. I tried working while I was on the streets. That was nearly impossible because I'd work. I I did actually get a job in a sewing factory in Grey Lynn at one point and um but I had nowhere to go after the sewing factory except back to K Road where you know all the kids were and there was nowhere to sleep and there was like you had to go and find some food and then you had to be back at work at like six o'clock in the morning and I ended up getting really really frustrated and um couldn't keep that routine up but the thing that had happened for me was um there was no social workers or anything that were actually looking for me or so I'd completely fallen through the cracks. So I was there, but I, but it was like, I didn't exist. You know what I mean? And I was going through all that, but I wasn't, didn't exist. So I ended up going back to a high school after the birth of my first son, when I moved away from Auckland and finishing sixth and seventh form, just to see if I was smart enough to go, because I didn't know, even though I was in the top, stream at Avondale College my whole thing was I was the only black kid there was a lot of bullying a lot of racist bullying but um and my only thing was trying to get myself put down into a lower grade a mainstream grade where there was more um Maori and Pacifica people because I felt really out of place in this top stream so apparently I was smart enough to be in the top stream but I, I was uncomfortable there I was just I just felt like really out of place there and um, and then there was the stuff that was going on at home where I, you know, it was just making it untenable even to, even to attend school at one point. So um, yeah, I think it's that it's that it's that having missed out some of the the natural cultural capitals that you that you get from being in a family, you know, a caring family that cares about your welfare and your future, and having that shared to you so that you actually have the tools to go on to work or extra study. You know, I had to find that all myself. And that's the stuff that I've tried to pass on to my, to my kids. Cause I did eventually go to university, but I wasn't, it wasn't until I was about 30. So I went back to, I went to university as an adult student with two kids and was there for five years and got a, double major in sociology and anthropology, which just threw another spanner into the works because sometimes it's like, Jesus, you know, ignorance is bliss. Now I know how this whole thing works. <laughs> I 
then this just makes me, you know, I found out that I was naturally socialist leaning when I was in university, like everything that was about my personality and my preferences was very along the lines of socialism, but I didn't know what that was until I went to university because, you know, like the environment that I'd come from as a teenager was non-educational. It was, you know, pretty much the underbelly of New Zealand. And it's probably, you know, some of the roughest, toughest, you know, um, circumstances that, um, that uh, a lot of young Māori and Pacifica and people of colour, like me, were going through in those days. And, and you know, so I think, like, I think that's the biggest thing is not having the information and having to kind of do a catch-up. I've always felt like I've been trying to catch up in knowledge. Like I'm always catching up, like trying to learn new stuff. And if I can, if I'm smart enough to, like, you know, grasp it, then grasp it and apply it, you know, and then also pass that on to my kid, to my kids, and especially to like, you know, my young. But oh, the other part of that question that you're asking me, you know, what does that? What was the impact on that? You know, for the family. Well, like my cousin, my my sons have grown up without cousins, without aunties, without like they're there, but they're not here, right? Like I've got brothers and sisters in Tanzania and in the UK, but they're not here in New Zealand. And, you know, you live in a country like New Zealand where everybody's got a big whanau and you're just you, and then you have kids, so it's just you and your kids. So for me, it's always been like we're a team, you know, and I've been very protective of them when it comes to um, toxic behaviour from, you know, people that maybe are connected to us but they haven't you know, like, it's not good. It's not good for them. It wouldn't be good for me, you know? So, but as they've gotten older, I'm like, as you're older, then you can teach them this is why these things happen. And now you're an adult, you can address, you can address these people in your own time as an adult with what you can cope with. And that's, that's about the best you can do. Cause there's no, there's no, um, you know, training book for this <laughs> at all. You know what I mean? or how to deal with that. And and the other thing that was really difficult here was that the assumption always growing up was if you're brown, if you present brown, you've got a whānau. You've got some big extended whānau somewhere. And I had to battle that so much until I went to Australia. And in Australia, like, it never came up. But here, it used, you know, like if you're a single mother and you have to go into wins, oh, what about your family? And you have to explain all the stuff that you're actually quite disconnected from your New Zealand family. The only family you've got is the family that's in Africa that actually care about you. Like that was the funny thing. My dad was never present, but he was always present. And my mum was here. She was never present. So, you know, it's sort of that's a really sort of complicated thing for people to grasp that that sort of thing can happen in a country as small as New Zealand, I think. And the, the institutional sort of, sort of um, application of those ideas that, you know, if you come in and you look brown, then you must have a big whānau somewhere that can support you and blah, 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 when it never existed. It wasn't there. And I was doing everything myself, you know. So that also made sometimes things difficult because you were dealing with people's predisposed bias to that all the time. Yeah. 
how do you feel COVID has impacted you? Has technology helped? Um, and did you feel left behind in any way as an old old member of the older generation? Actually, I loved COVID. It was just time to shut off and nothing was expected of you tomorrow, the next day or the next day, which for me, it was like, I need this break. <laughs> I need this time out. And we just started our show uh, at the end of that first COVID lockdown. And then when the second COVID, I was just like, oh, thank God. I just I just need to stop, you know. But, um, and I've loved discovering Zoom, this stuff, you know, like team meets and Google. I love this. This works for me because it works with my disabilities. I've got chronic fatigue syndrome and Emmy, and it's like, and it's connected to these other comorbidities that just absolutely knock me on my ass. So this is, this makes it easy for me. If I can, and I've been able to do um, stuff with my, um, a, a woman who does therapy with me using this kind of technology, which saves me from like having to go and thing, get in the car, drive into the city, find a parking, all the stuff that, you know, sometimes the money's just not there. And and this has made it really, really easy for us. To, and this is EDMR. So um, I, I found like, and but I think that if you're not, technologically savvy or you don't have access cheap or free access to the internet and the laptops or the computers or the all the technology that you need that can make it really hard and um i know that there are there are people on lower incomes that can access this and make it a priority and then it's for some other people it's not it's not a priority it's just it's like extra stuff that they have to do and you know um, and I can see how that can be hard because like I noticed with a lot of people like maybe 10 years older than me, they always want to have meetings. And I'm like, can somebody just run a Zoom so we can sit at the meeting from home? You know, oh, that's like really, no, it's not hard. You just need somebody in the room that needs to do this. And it's just this resistance to like the resistance to technology more so than the ability to access it. I get frustrated with people, you know, my age and older that don't want to take advantage of technology because, you know, it, it, once you understand it, it might actually make your life a little easier, you know, especially if you've got mobility issues or, you know, um, you know, or you've got like chronic fatigue issues or any health issues that means that you're stuck at home more often. I do my best to not look like I've got disabilities and sometimes that fools people. But the reality is I might look bright and shiny today and tomorrow I'll be flatlined <laughs> for 12 hours, you know? So that's difficult. I think like when people are sort of, you know, and there's also this thing, I don't know if it's a Kiwi thing, but I'm watching a lot of people my age drop dead. Like people that I grew up with drop dead early. and they work, they work like workhorses until they drop dead, supporting their family and supporting everyone. And I think that one of the things that's not natural to my generation, I don't believe in New Zealand is self-care. It's not natural. Our, we were taught care for everybody else, carry everybody on our shoulders. And, you know, at the end of days, um, you know, mum's going to be in charge of everything and the kids are going to do what they want to do. But if you, if you, if you look at this generation today, uh, how many of them are going to be doing that? They're not, 
you know like that's that's what i'm saying you know like i i just see like we're getting like what we were taught to do as young people and as young parents it's not translating to the yeah and when you get to this end of your life all of them people are going to be looking after you it doesn't always translate like that and it really depends on all the things that were taught and and and, and, and inspired in your family as you grow up and you know like i'm watching a lot of people my age drop dead and one of the things that i'm kind of getting the hang of now is taking care of myself and pacing myself and not overdoing it and not pushing myself past boundaries that are gonna um detrimentally affect me you know what i mean and that's really hard i think that's really hard for us because everybody i knew growing up were doing more than you know just doing everything for everyone and i didn't have i only had my kids but i was very involved in community work in taranaki and also in community work here i actually took in kids here like i had six boys at one stage while i was studying at university <laughs> and holding down a part-time job i mean that's insane and so that was that was pretty hard you know um and I think that a lot of that sort of thing has happened quite a lot in New Zealand with the fungi, you know, having taken in fungi or, or looking after people who are sick or, you know, uh, care caregiving. There's a lot of that goes sort of unnoticed and, and we don't, I don't think it's innate to my generation of women. So us Gen Xs, it's not innate to us to, to take care of ourselves first, I don't think. I think it's something that we're learning from these younger people, you know, because they won't, they won't, they won't lift the toe if it if it discomforts them. You know what I mean? What would you do differently, and what projects now you're older have you given more time towards? The project that I'm involved with at the moment basically came about after coming back from Australia and and having person after person after person come up to me in Wellington because I'd done a lot of work in the community before I left you know and then sitting back and feeling like there was a sense of we were building in the 90s through the 2000s and then there was this vacuum of people that had left in the mid 2000s from the community go to Australia or wherever because you know the economy and you know just to have options and choices and then also coming back there was a lot more um people because i feel most comfortable in the african community and around other african people to be quite honest um so coming so that's what i'm talking about but i'm not specifically like i'm tanzanian but you know i just feel generally more comfortable around african people and coming back and finding there was this sort of like there was no direction like um, young people were like, nah, there isn't any community. Everybody's out for themselves. That's all it is now. And I'd never been in New Zealand with social media. That was new for me coming back. I, you know, like I only got into social media in Australia. And I, and I remember on the plane coming back and saying to my son, I don't know if New Zealand actually needs social media because our BBC, our Black Broadcasting Corporation, which was just gossip and telephone lines, worked really really well <laughs> probably even faster than facebook and instagram and that's what i came back to this kind of we i felt like i came back to this weird space where now we have social media 
And now people are not feeling as free to express themselves because they're more worried about what people would think of them. I don't know. It was really, it was really an odd feeling. And the project that I'm working on now was just kind of born out of this, like, I feel like there needs to be sort of, I was having a chat with the guy that was um, involved right from the beginning. And um, I was like, I feel like we need to have our own podcast to talk about all this stuff and just put it out there. You know, we need to just have the space because nobody's talking. Everybody seems to be worried about what people think of them um, or really overly self-conscious because of social media. And we're not addressing anything. Like everything's kind of like at this, this static kind of standstill. And um, so we just started that. And part of that also too was that because I couldn't get back into employment and stuff, it was, it was something that I felt I was going a little bit nuts. So I needed something to do. I've never been a person that could just sit on a, on, on a um, you know, unemployment line and not keep myself busy doing something. You know what I mean? So I, I guess like my, my uh, therapist said that I'm, that I'm a high achiever. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, what, what is, what's that word for it? Um, overthink things and you kind of like try to create things. And so we just started this radio show. And I think initially it was more, it's more like in my head, I've always wanted New Zealand to have its own pan-African diaspora community center, you know, like, you know, if you identify with um, the black diaspora globally, here's a place you can go. And, you know, all those things that are happening there are going to be happening there for you. Like I grew up around people who have marais and uh, people who had Pacifica houses, you know, and they had their, their fales and whatnot and their church things. And I'm not religious um, anymore. I used to be, well, I was actually raised Catholic. And then I went through a whole lot of experiments trying to find it and eventually was Muslim for a period of time and then I came out of that and I'm sort of like mm, I'm not I'm not any of that I, I you know like I think that I think that my mentality is always been about freedom it's I, I don't like getting locked in so I think like I sort of think about the project that I'm doing at the moment is like a virtual community center and you don't have to be an academic you don't have to be you know the star you don't have to be the, the the top achiever or anything we just want to get to know you and you can come in and tell your story or discuss what you want to discuss or we might ask you some things and it's kind of like just that gathering you know just centering that gathering and, and around something that's central to all of us and that's belonging to you know with no biases or no sort of like things that uh, are related to pathways that you got here I don't we don't care about that like I did I did a black history of New Zealand for black history month in February on our Facebook page and I was just researching whalers and the gold rush mm. and I mean there were black people coming in, in the, with the whalers and marrying intermarrying in the South Island where they went so like so we got black people coming into New Zealand and then when the whaling stopped, they were running, it was called, they were, they were on the runs at the gold rush. Yeah. So there was black people on the run, like, I guess that's the panning area. Yeah. I had that, that was the same thing when I was looking for information on SCAP, um, Special Commonwealth yeah. African Assistance Plan. It's like a lot of information was like 
like shattered around like sent around the world and just trying to get the records like I got the record of the handbook I got the record of this but then sometimes I have to go to international libraries to find out other information of stuff that was going on here and then I came across this really interesting uh, PhD uh, paper written by a guy called Sean Brawley so you find records all over the place but not where you think you could find them you really have to hunt to find information and um even like for myself I know when I was living at my mum's house like the census record I know that my stepfather either ticked negro or coded us as negro me yeah. and my sister because I've got a sister that's half Ugandan mm. and so when I'm trying to get in touch with stats to ask, you know, like, so where are the where are the records? For, oh, no, we never, ever did that. How visible do you feel in your community on a regular day to day basis? And what makes you feel good? I think I'm visible because I'm kind of loud <laughs> now. I don't I, I, I didn't say much when I was quite young. Um, I wasn't really a talker. I basically watched a lot. Uh, but I found my voice, I think, in my thirties. So I think I'm, I think I'm a lot louder now than I ever was before. Well, that's what people tell me. But <laughs> that's what people tell me. But I think, like, um, on the day to day, I think I've, I've basically, like, over years, people have sort of gotten to know me for being a person that's passionate about community probably more passionate than most people mainly because I didn't have community growing up I had that period between like my 10 like say 10-ish to about 30-ish where I didn't really have community I was kind of like the extra add-on to somebody else's community and then moving to Wellington was the first time I'd lived in an African community and um, you know, my first bunch of friends down here were a bunch of Somali girls actually in the same flats that I'm in right now. And it was the first time I'd been in a community where occasionally I'd hear Swahili spoken. And this is after I've been to Africa and come back again. Just recently, another organization ran a Swahili workshop. Young kids that looked like me when I was that age, being able to learn Swahili language in New Zealand. That was just for me, that was such a buzz. I was like, we... You know, I may never know how to speak the language fluently unless I'm totally immersed in it because you're not exposed to it all the time here. But seeing how much these little kids really enjoyed having a language program, this was run by Africa Connection Aotearoa, um, having a, a language program that they could all be a part of. I'm hoping that that actually continues, that somebody picks up the mantle for that because Swahili is so widely spoken. In Africa, and I and we don't have any like official African languages being taught in New Zealand, and that was the first. That's the first time that's ever happened. And what makes you you? What makes me me? Oh my god! Um, what makes me me? Uh, hair bleach. <laughs> hair bleach is a very big thing for me. I love bleaching my hair. I want to see how wide it can go because I really hate the way it's pepper potting all over my head at the moment and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever it's not even cool so I'm just gonna I'm just bleaches my friend and um what else makes me me um oh horror movies <laughs> I love a good horror and sci-fi movie what else makes me me 
I think I've got a passion for community um, and community building. And I really, really want to see some sort of like, you know, when we hit critical mass or whenever, um, I'd really like to see uh, brick and mortars community centre where we can have our weddings, we can have our celebrations, we can have our parties, we can have our meetings and we can get support for people in the community. And it doesn't always have to be my living room. Like we could actually have a building for this, you know? <laughs> Why can't we have a building? So, you know, and in the meantime, you know, creating this virtual community centre. Give us a fond memory of West Auckland. Oh, you have one. yes, I do. Oakley Falls. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oakley Falls was the, that was the place. That's when I lived in Waterview because we moved from Greyland during the dawn raids. And right across the road, across Great North Road, there was the big paddocks, which was the back of the Oakley Mental Asylum. It was part of their fields. And I don't know, it was, it was somewhere around the time that I was at Waterview Primary and then I went to St. Mary's Intermediate. Somebody discovered there was waterfalls down there. So that was the place all the kids went. We just jumped the fence, run across the fields, go and play. It was a massive waterfall with a deep hole. I don't know even if it's still there. It, it might still be there. And it's like it backed onto, you know, there was Carrington Hospital and Oakley Mental Asylum and stuff. That's what they called it. And it was at the back of that, but it was, but there was fencing on the other side of the falls. And sometimes we'd run over to the other side up to the fence and you would see the inmates walking around with their guards. But kids used to run away there and hide down there. You know, there was a lot of like, and it was kind of like our secret place that we could go and just be ourselves and no adults watching us. No. You didn't really have an option to sit down and talk about it. It was always punch first, ask questions later. That was what it was like. It wasn't really, there was no discussion about your feelings or emotions or anything. You just had to handle. And um, Oakley Falls was a lot of fun. Thank you, Leah. My name's Leah Lupala and I'm just older, darling. That was episode three of season two of I'm Just Older, Darling. This is brought to you by Same Same But Black, supported by Creative Henderson Massey. 